is going to sort of different parts all around the country, EC Arena, Memphis Television. So it was quite a nostalgic look back at uh, sort of this. So in this podcast, we are going to, I'm, I'm going to read you the, the chapter so you can t- tell me what it's about, okay? Okay. Okay, first, uh, a five one five zero zero world history of, of American pro wrestling. Pro wrestling press January 2003. What is that? So that was a uh, an article that I did um, where I tried to write sort of the whole history of uh, wrestling in America in the 20th century in exactly 1,500 words. Um, so it was kind of almost a, sort of a challenge to myself to see could I write it sort of really clearly and concisely and get um you know all the most important bits in there and sort of really boil it down sort of the, the absolute basics of of how the uh, wrestling works okay first first chapter hook hulk Wu gas extreme akash 996 yeah, so that's the first of the travel uh, stories. Uh, Hulk, who was a book, uh, was a fanzine that I was writing for at the time in sort of 1994 to 1997. So the, the Hulk Who Goes Extreme, that was a special edition that I did, um, which is all about going, at that time, was just going to ECW Arena and uh, talking about uh, sort of going backstage there, going to sort of a question and answer sessions, and then also seeing sort of two shows in the BCW arena, which was quite an amazing experience. Wow. Okay, next. Hulk, who got beyond the extreme? February 1997. Yeah, so that was the, the second story uh, story of going to America. That was uh, February in 1997. And that time, instead of just going to sort of the ECW convention, uh, made it into sort of a two-week journey, uh, started out going around the old Memphis uh, territory, seeing like sort of Jerry Lawler in the TV studio there. Um, we went to WWF pay-per-view. That was one where... Uh, Shawn Michaels had just given up the title, so they had the, the four-way match for it, which uh, Bret Hart won, um, and going sort of raw the next night, and they're going again to uh, an ECW convention, which was uh, a show in New York and a show at the ECW Arena. Okay, and the final Hakwu, Hakwu, the final Frontier, September ninety-seven. And again, that was the, the third trip. Um, that one started out in Dallas. Um, that was kind of a, a, a quite an amazing trip because I flew flew into Dallas, uh, having got up early in the morning, went to a show at the Sportatorium, got an overnight bus uh, to uh, Nashville where I saw a WWF show. Um, we got another overnight bus to Louisville where we uh, went to a WWF pay-per-view. That was ground zero with the first uh, Shawn Michaels Undertaker match. Um, couldn't stay in Louisville because you had to be 21 at the time to get a hotel room in Kentucky. Uh, so then got a sort of a bus through the night to Cincinnati. So having got up very early Friday morning, it was about four o'clock uh, in the morning, Monday morning, the first time I actually went to bed on this trip. So that was quite an, a, a, a strenuous trip, but certainly, you know, couldn't do this many years later. Wouldn't really have the energy. Um, but after that, we went to all the next night. And then we went down to Amarillo in Texas to what was at the time was billed as Terry Funk's retirement match against Bret Hart. Uh, and then the day after that, we went out to the, the Double Cross Ranch, which is Terry Funk's house and sort of enormous garden where they had a, a barbecue for the wrestlers and fans. 
Yeah, but Terry Funk never retires. No, no, he sort of after that. That was meant to be his last ever match, and then he sort of changed his mind to it was his last match in America. Then he decided it was his last match in Texas, and, and then a couple of years later he was back in Amarillo wrestling again. So yeah, I, I'm not sure he's ever actually going to retire. Okay, next in page 142, the match May 1991. That was actually a uh, a piece I'd written um, for school English exam where uh, we were just given the title of the match and had to write an article uh, or sort of a story. Um, so all I did was I just wrote down everything that happened in the um, the Ultimate Warrior Randy Savage match at WrestleMania 7. And of course, the, uh, the, the teachers who were marking this you know, didn't know about wrestling and it seemed like I just made up this brilliant story. So, um, yeah, I got, I got a very high mark for that and all the credit belongs to uh, Pat Patterson and the writers at WWF. Okay, the next is from March 93 in page 144 is Unpublished Peace. Yeah, I think if I remember rightly, that piece was um, after Hulk Hogan had uh, just gone on TV in Britain Um and he's he talked about you know wrestling isn't real we're not really out there trying to hurt each other we're just having fun and of course you know at the time i i didn't want to believe that was true so i think that was piece my piece was me trying to kind of uh justify to myself how you know he was actually lying and, and really wrestling was real and i don't know why he was coming out with this this rubbish it's it's quite funny to to read it back okay next is what if Sid Vicious I give the NWA World title? I have a 90 Hulk Wiltrin 1984. Yeah, so this was a a. a series of pieces we we had in Hulk who where it was kind of fantasy booking really so it was going back um taking sort of a, a famous moment in wrestling history and kind of changing it um and seeing you know what would have happened afterwards so of course at the time I was writing this I sort of thought wrestling was completely you know on the level and real but so I didn't really know what I was I was doing this but what I was actually doing was kind of fantasy booking at the time so it's, it's quite fun to read back and, and look at those. Yeah. Okay. N- next in 150, what if Bundy uh, uh, attack Hogan during an A6 next May event? Yeah. So again, uh, uh, another piece um, along the same lines, looking at uh, you know what what would have changed if that had happened, and kind of looking through the the whole kind of uh, how things could have been different. Yeah. So what if the Hard Brothers are what attack people and an A4 Real Rumble? And do you do you listen to the question? Yeah, so the yeah, look at the uh, the piece now. Yeah, I mean the there's sort of a a whole range of these, um, all kind of quite fun. Looking at how things have been different. Um, I think this this one particularly one ended up in uh, rather than the the Hart brothers turning against each other, it actually ends up with the Steiner brothers turning against each other. Yeah. Okay. Is talking point. Oh, how have pretty stories evolved? Hack Woods eliminated Yeah, so that's uh, another sort of um, piece where we used to kind of talk about what was going on in in wrestling at the time and kind of go into a bit of depth into it. Um, and this piece was kind of looking at um, the d- American tours of, of Britain, which had been going for about five years at this point, um, and they've been sort of very different. You know, it'd gone really through sort of a um, 
kind of a big boom and then a bust. So they got very, very popular. And by about 1991, 1992, um, it was slumping the business in America, but still doing very well in in Britain. So we were kind of looking at, you know, why that was, um, what the kind of matches were were going on and sort of how, how kind of seriously they took the, the UK market. Okay, the next question is pretty, 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 for me, pretty sucking. What if Randy Savage had won the retirement belt at WrestleMania 7? Yeah, so again, uh, another of the, the kind of uh, the what-ifs, um, kind of really looking at uh, how things would have would have been different, what would have happened to Randy Savage in the, the next year. Um, and I think we, we kind of can end up with something very similar where, you know, Randy Savage still actually ends up beating Ric Flair at the end. But this time, you know, he's he's actually a villain and it's exactly the same finish, which is him uh, holding the tights of Ric Flair, which he really did do. But kind of looking at the viewpoint, you know, had he been a, a baddie wrestler, that would have been seen very different. Okay, next is for November 94, is the Irresistible Force. Yeah, so um, we... The Hulk Who fanzine was written by myself and a, a friend um, and we would both write a column. Mine would be called Irresistible Force and his would be called The Immovable Object, uh, which was a, a reference to the, the Gorilla Monsoon line whenever you had sort of two big stars meet. Um, and this particular piece was just lifting, listing some of the, the many dreams that I'd had about wrestling and how absolutely, you know, bizarre they were. Um, you know, Bret Hart winning world title, winning, even yeah. when he's in a so wheelchair. <laughs> This What if Bob Backlund had been fed to wrestle on 24th January 1984? Yes, I mean, that was kind of looking at um, the idea of, of, of had they not really gone with, with Hulk Hogan as the big star, had they gone with, with Bob Backlund um, and sort of not done the national expansion. Um, and we kind of really kind of conclude with the idea that, you know, wrestling would, would or WWF certainly would not have got as, as popular tracing it like right through to the, the idea that you know in in britain it would have been even the wwf would have been something you didn't see on tv and it was only sort of a few fans watching it on on tapes okay so what if what if rick flair made good any retire in january 93 on monday night on monday night raw yes i mean that was a enough one looking um again how things could have been very different um how it would have ended up with with Bret Hart and Ric Flair still sort of fighting the the next year um and what would have happened if uh you know Ric Ric Flair would become sort of a a baby face okay this 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 is another Ric Flair but what if Terry Funk and me Ric Flair submit a class of Chippings 9 yeah, so again, that um, uh, uh, was an I quit match. Uh, the, you know, the loser had to go. So we're kind of looking at um, what would have happened there if, if Flair had sort of not been around um, and what would have happened if, you know, Sting was going to be sort of the next big star and would it would things have been different had Ric Flair not been around, kind of taking a lot of kind of a glory and, and people were kind of comparing Sting to Ric Flair the whole time. Yeah, okay. Nalek is another irresistible force for March 1985. Yeah, so I mean, that's a, that was a, a fun little piece where we're looking at um, all sorts of situations in, in football, particularly, uh, and sort of other TVs and sport or other sports, um, but were sort of very um, 
resembling of, of kind of the storylines of, of wrestling. Yeah. Okay. So Wrestling Insight April 995. Yeah, so Wrestling Insight was uh, another fanzine that I wrote for sort of a guest columnist uh, and I try things out. And this little piece was kind of just looking at um, what actually was kind of a, a common problem, which was uh, spell check was a, a big thing on, on word processors there. Um, and they didn't yet have the sort of ability to learn uh, unfamiliar words. So now if you put in a word it doesn't know, you can tell it this is correct and it sort of won't bring it up again. But uh, the one I was using at the time always had trouble, would never learn the word. So any wrestler's name it didn't recognize, it would kind of replace it. And I was just looking at some the, the actual, you know, the rather sort of unfortunate and quite often silly uh, names that it would, would put in for the wrestlers if you, you didn't watch out for it. Okay, another wrestling insight from May 95. Yeah, so this was more sort of a comedic thing of, you know, you know you're a wrestling fan, you just put too much time um because of things like you know you've bought the the midnight express soundtrack album and you only ever listen to the one song in it which was for the midnight express uh tag teams uh theme um you know your parents go away for two weeks and instead of trashing their house you just watch wrestlemania's one to ten without a break okay the next one i never heard this story but why is tony anthony i retain the smw book race bro 93 yeah, so Sylvester was uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, um, and the uh, Tony Tony Anthony of the time was um, uh, against another wrestler called uh, Tracy Smothers, uh, and actually the they had uh, so much uh, kind of heat. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, the next one is um, well here. What is Bret Hart beat David Boy Smith at SummerSlam 92 in Wembley Stadium? Yes, I mean, that's quite a you know, very famous uh, famous match, particularly for sort of fans in, in Britain where I was. Um, so we're kind of looking at what would happen if, if Bret Hart had kept the belt. Um, and I think the conclusion was that, you know, he'd, he'd have to become a, a bad guy because fans would be so upset with him losing. And what would a sort of a bad guy Bret Hart have looked like at that time? I will tell you, if Bret Hart defeated with me at SummerSlam the fans will trust the ring. <laughs> I think that's quite possible. Yeah, it was a very, very heated crowd that I remember. <laughs> yeah. So next is Spotlight from July 95. Spotlight. Yeah, so Spotlight was a piece we do in Hulk Who every month where it was, uh, we just do sort of a, a profile of a wrestler. So it would be things like, you know, their real name, their debut, sort of, you know, ha whether they were a strong wrestler or a fast wrestler or, you know, good at flying. Um, but this particular one, we kind of used it. It was um, almost kind of a spoof piece, um, which was about a, a guy called Nick Higson, who was a tape trader at the time who took a lot of people's money and then never delivered it. So we kind of used that as kind of a, a, a fun way to keep his name out there and sort of warn people about him. Okay. And John, in, right now, CR5 Wrestling Insects. Are you ready to do this? Yeah, okay, Wrestling first. Insight was yeah, another piece. Um, and this was just a piece that um, was about how you know how crazy it was that in 1996 that you know, wrestlers were still using steroids 
um, even though sort of so much was known about their dangers, which was kind of crazy. You were writing that in 1996 and, you know, the, the Chris Benoit situation and the Eddie Guerrero death was 20 years after that. So, you know, some things never, never learn. Okay, the fans, how many years did it take you to do this book? Um, so this book, I mean, it's um, a compilation, really. So it's about 13 years worth of, of articles uh, that I've written for various things. Um, and then I put it together in uh, 2005 uh, when I sort of started working as a freelance writer. Uh, so put together these pieces to, to publish. Okay, the next is the No Show DT, Sucker Punch, December 97. Yeah, so this was... Um, We'd, we'd actually just kind of have this, this sort of conversation um, and somebody had just, we were talking about sort of wrestlers who you couldn't rely on to turn up when you sort of booked them. Uh, and somebody said, you know, you never can tell with Buddy Landell. Um, and it just turned into this sort of long, long game where you'd come up with the most ridiculous rhymes about wrestlers not turning up, you know, all of which were things like, you know, an experienced booker won't use Jimmy Snooker. Um, it's sure to go wrong when you book an Armstrong for a professional worker, forget the berserker. Um, and it was just like absolutely, you know, ridiculous ones that we actually ended up with more than nearly 70 of these. Okay. What makes a great worker? Sucker Punch, December 98. Yeah. So this was kind of uh, this time, uh, the uh, kind of things that fans were writing about in fanzines was kind of changing. It was a lot, you know, it used to be, you know, this wrestler's the best because he's beaten everybody else. And it was more people were starting to think more about how wrestling really works um, and and kind of what the important skills are. And we're kind of looking at, you know, what is 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 actually like a, a, a good wrestler, one a good worker. But So you're taking things like that they can do it every night without sort of getting injured, that they can do these moves without injuring their opponent, that they can listen to the crowds and kind of um, be appropriate for the crowd. So it's kind of quite interesting to see how we're sort of changing the, the kind of things we're writing about. Okay, next is Unpublished um, Journal, September 1990. Yeah, so this is a, I, I've made a, another trip to the States, um, but um, I'd only been to wrestling uh, sort of four or five of the days of this trip, so it wasn't really enough to do a magazine of its own, so I just sort of sent this to some friends at the time, um, and I saw things like I saw a, a NWA show where a, a British wrestler won the NWA title for the first time, Gary Steele. Um, I went to the uh, WWE pay-per-view with the infamous the Kennel from Hell match with Al Snow. Um, so that was, um, you know, quite a, a thing to have seen. Not for a good thing, but it's a bad thing. And also I had some quite crazy adventures trying to get picked up by a, a taxi driver and got picked up by what was clearly an, an unlicensed taxi driver who had, you know, far more people in the car than there should have been. Um didn't really have like a meet or anything you just if you had some spare money you gave it to him and eventually you get to where you wanted to go so it was quite a a, a scary journey so okay the next word we used to call james Ellsworth, the broken bar and barry horowitz jabber and the published 2000 yeah so this is just the i'd, I'd started writing a, a novel like everyone else but didn't get very far so it was thought it was a, a fun thing to include um the idea of the the 
book would have been that there were, you know, for jobber uh, kind of wrestler, unlike the star, they tend to go around uh, all over the place, wrestle all sort of different promotions. And it's kind of um, the idea was it, it would have been a little bit Forrest Gump like in that, you know, he just would have happened to have been, you know, in the dressing room of all sort of big events that happened in wrestling, like, you know, locker room fights, like the Montreal screw job. Um, and and the idea would be kind of almost telling the history of, of wrestling through sort of this this guy's fictional career. Okay, now next is 20th century takes Russian wrap up January 2000. Yeah, so this piece uh, was kind of a, a long in depth piece looking at the the shoot style promotions in uh, Japan, like the UWFI, the original UWF. Um, and the they they were sort of done on the idea that they did a more realistic form of wrestling um as you didn't have as much showmanship it was more sort of martial arts moves and sort of i was looking at the kind of how confusing it is that they're kind of trying to say that other wrestling is fake but our wrestling is real and how that's really confusing for fans because once you start thinking well this other wrestling is fake then surely yours must be as as well so it was looking at how that that worked and how it ended up getting very confusing when it went into new japan pro wrestling as well can i ask can i ask can i ask a question i will continue later okay okay so you made this until 2004 right that's right yes so I think you need to make another book from 2005 to 2020 because, t- like Muhammad Hassan, when the Dan Anderson shriek, Vince McMahon being stupid or that. Yeah, I think that'd be be quite a book. Um, I mean, a lot of my my stuff has been published since then. I've worked for uh, magazines like Fighting Spirit magazine, so some of my other books have have got work on there. But yeah, certainly, have been a, a a crazy 15 or 20 years since then. This is a bonus question, but we we continue later, okay? A bonus question. Okay. And tell us the creation of Muhammad Hassan, if you know. Yes, I mean, he was, that was a a very interesting character because he was uh, brought in a few years after the September 11th uh, attacks. Um, And his original character was that he was an American uh, Muslim wrestler who was sort of complaining about the fact that people immediately sort of saw him and prejudged him and assumed that, you know, he was a terrorist and would like not trust him in anything. And he would say sort of how unfair it this is, which was like quite an interesting kind of nuanced character. Um, but it then turned out that, you know, they just had him be a heel, be, you know, cheat against people. Um, you know, they, they infamously had him, you know, attack the Undertaker and have him carried off by sort of men in masks. And I think that was really dangerous by WF because that really, um, the impression that gave is that, you know, a Muslim wrestler who sort of claims to be peaceful is actually, you know, bad and lying to you. And I think that was... Um, that that really caused a, a lot of offence to a, a lot of people because it was kind of playing on the stereotypes. Okay, and the last bonus question comes from a fan. Okay. Okay. So the um, my work you come the best gimmick or the worst gimmick um, uh, being uh, being great was from two thousand four name Eugene. Oh gosh, yes. Yes, and that was a, um, a wrestler called Nick Dinsmore, and he um, was given the gimmick of 
he was Eric Bischoff at the time was uh, an authority figure in WWF, um, and Nick, uh, Eugene was his uh, nephew, I believe. Uh, and they sort of never specifically said it was, but he had uh, was clearly meant to be some sort of some kind of learning disability he had who uh sort of had this amazing skill for had picked up wrestling so you know you'd, you'd think he was really stupid but he was brilliant at wrestling because he had this skill um and it was i remember it was of a sort of strangest character ever because um he, he'd start off like winning against uh people who aren't really wrestlers like uh jonathan coachman he had a match with um and then he had a, a big match with Triple H at SummerSlam and just lost to him like a lot of wrestlers did, you know, lost very cleanly. But a few years later, they put out a sort of special one hour show kind of looking at the career of Eugene on uh, WWF pay-per-views at the time. They'd have it would be sort of like four or five dollars for a sort of a one hour pay-per-view. And we tell the story about, you know, how uh, heroic he is and, you know, he struggles against all these bigger wrestlers and sort of out wrestles for them. And then the, the show just ends, he just gets pinned by um, Triple H and that's the end of the show. So it was quite a, a, a sort of unusually strange end to, to sort of a story about what was meant to be a, a good guy wrestler. Yeah, but talk, talk about William Regal. The defense have created uh, uh, a history. What would happen if Eugene was injured, and William Regal replaced Eugene in a SummerSlam match against Triple H, opening a no DQ a Foster Anywhere match. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a, a, quite an interesting match. Um, I mean, uh, Triple H and, and William Regal obviously got on quite well, um, and, you know, they're colleagues now, obviously, and, and, and uh, both working in sort of management with Triple H overseeing sort of NXT and, and William Regal kind of on screen as the, the leader there. So it would have been obviously a, a lot less comedy, I think, in the match, but it would have been quite interesting to see what way they went with that, um, whether it was sort of, you know, more violent or uh, more sort of a comedic stuff. Yeah. Wait, I'm finding a promo from William Regal that you may know this from 2004. Okay. I will read to you. Okay, dear, 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 someone has lost in Brown Day. I hate to be to front to you, lad, but Eugene isn't here this week. You honestly don't think that I will lead that love to Sandra? No, 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 no. What kind of a man do you think will let Eugene in the bowling last week? Really, it's a popular question, isn't it? What kind of a vehicle villain do you think will tell Eugene to get involved in your match? In your match? It was me, Sunshine. You see, me and you know it's very well indeed, don't we? Let me give you a little lesson. Even years ago, me and you were talking in WCW. In fact, I was your mentor, wasn't I? Yes, indeed, I was. What can I say? I mean, let's be facts. Some people, people like us, we just born naughty. We are. That's why we created people each other. And if you if you have used and abuse for that poor dear poor Eugene, I would have applied for you cunning. But if you're a clever man like yourself, it, it was pretty foolish to the opinion of a disappointed boy because now you're an enemy of me. And if you want to look, look, look now, tell your father, because I will call you, call you now, go and touch my ring and tell I will join back in the ring. I, I will pilot you, you, but everyone's a pilot man that runs through my base. Do you remember that promo? Yeah, so it, it would have been quite a very interesting to match to watch, because I think one of the effective things about, about William Regal is because he does so much kind of comedy stuff where he was sort of the butt of everyone's jokes, but he's got this ability to when he does a sort of a serious match and there's a, a grudge when he sort of turns it on, it, it makes it so much more effective that, you know, you've actually got him upset and angry and like now you're sort of, you know, going to pay the price for it. Yeah, the promo on K-Match was for 
8.4 .4 stars. Wow, that's a pretty book from my William Regal. So, okay, let's run with your book. Okay, now next is the Death of the Seeds, Mutual Extra, Jolly 2000. Yeah, so this was talking about um, a, a lot of work I'd done before this was for fanzines and, and sort of uh, sheets that they were sort of called in, in the trade. But, you know, fans would make their own uh, kind of magazines um, and newsletters and print them up and photocopy of them and send them out in the post. And it was kind of looking back at that because this had become with uh, sort of the growth of the internet, um, everyone was sort of, you know, was now discussing things online, writing websites. So it was kind of looking back at uh, how things had changed uh, and what kind of effect this had. Okay, now next, who killed WCW? He was Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Shane McMahon, or Stephanie McMahon? Nobody knows. <laughs> Tell us, John. Yeah, so this was... Um, from, I was right, working for a or writing for a fanzine called Wrestling's Last Hope where people would send in a letter with a question and, and I'd answer it. And somebody had asked, you know, have who I thought was responsible for the WCW collapse and, and what about actual figures. So what I did was actually look at sort of the business at the time between the the ratings they were getting on TV, which obviously drove the revenue, uh, the attendance they were getting at shows and the pay-per-view um and kind of a conclusion that i got was that the uh the kevin nash was in charge uh a lot of fans stopped watching whereas the when vince russo was in charge he had the same number of people watching the show people weren't turning off but they stopped uh, going to live events they stopped buying the pay-per-views uh so even though the tv ratings were still sort of uh holding steady it's all it wasn't very effective at uh at making money which was the idea yeah the, i know that was killed because of, of how going doing the finger book of doom that certainly yeah i mean that ran we we know that that ran off fans on the night and i think it it's um it was certainly a turning point, um, but it really it was it was not making new stars um, and also just some very badly written television, uh, which really sort of turned off a, a lot of people. Yeah, also Vince McMahon by, but by WCW, right? That's right, yeah. So, but if I had one wrestler, do you know what person he was? Sorry? Um, Vince McMahon um, fired a WCW wrestler. Uh, yeah, I remember he uh, wrestled uh, Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger and I think Jeff Jarrett. I think he announced all of them were sort of fired literally on air when uh, the last ever night show, which Vince McMahon was, was on because Raw and Nitro had the, the same on both sides. So, um, I think, you know, I Jeff Jarrett you. came back in the end. <laughs> I will tell you. Um, Leslie was fired for showing on Money Nitro, and Jeff Terry was fired for walking out. That's right, yeah, yeah. So it's, and Lex Luger's, I think, is the only one who's who's never come back since then. Yeah. So my next question is this: In the Watch Three Network, uh, I'm sorry. Do you watch Three Three Network? I do. Yes. In Three Untold, is a Three of of WCW. I don't think I've seen that particular one, no. Yeah, yeah, I will tell you. Uh, I will find it, okay? So, I will tell you what it is. Okay, here it is. Uh, and that will tell you, 
almost they until they felt relaunch of WCW tonight on the network. Okay. The first relaunch of WCW. What is that true? Uh, I don't think they they did at the time. They were planning to kind of relaunch it, and they actually were planning to uh, put it on Monday nights in in place of Raw. Um, and do sort of a feud between WCW and uh, WWF. Um, and the the crowd reaction sort of was so bad, they, in particular to a, they had a Buff Bagwell Booker T match on, on Raw, which fans who'd gone to see Raw didn't want to see. Um, and Vince uh, just very quickly kind of closed down the idea and said just kept Raw uh, and had the, the WCW wrestlers then sort of do the invasion rather than be a, a promotion of their own. Yeah, I also in the match, Buck Buffalo was fired for only that match. Buck Buffalo was fired, right? Yes, yeah. So, okay, next question. I love 1994, Wrestling's Last Hope, December 2001. Yeah, so this was a, a, a piece, uh, just looking back at, at 1994, which was, it wasn't a time when uh, wrestling was making a lot of money. It was having a lot of people kind of thought of it as the, the mid-90s were kind of a down period. But I was kind of looking at it from a, a fan point of view. And the, the thing that made it so different was that you had so many different promotions doing so many different styles. So you you had, uh, you know, WWF had people like Bret and Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, one two three kids all having good matches. Uh, WCW was still having some good stuff. You had ECW was kind of making a name. Smoky Mountain was still doing sort of the old style. And then had uh, AAA was doing the Lucha Libre with all the high flying. Uh, all Japan was having like the Misawa Kawada main events. And you have the Super J Cup in New Japan. So it was it's just a, a real style, um, a, a great time to be sort of watching all different wrestling from over the world. Yeah, so our next question is, let me find it, and Jim Barnett, Robertson Priest, I put this in two, Jim Barnett. Yeah, so this was kind of a, a, a biography of, of Jim Barnett, and he's a, a name that a lot of fans don't know, and he's probably one of the most influential men in, in wrestling history. He was involved in... Uh, in kind of the early days of wrestling on TV, he... he Ha- helps came up with the idea that you do studio wrestling so rather than just have your live wrestling at the arena which originally that's all tv wrestling was they just take a camera to the arena shows uh he came up with the idea of doing the, the studio match uh matches where it was tend to be squash matches with like a big star against sort of a no name uh to build up interest and if you wanted to see the, the big wrestlers fight off against each other you had to buy a ticket for the arena uh, he was also involved in a, a lot of the, the wrestling wars uh, between sort of the NWA and the sort of independent outlaw promotions. He went over to Australia and was a major figure there, um, doing sort of the best business they ever did there as a, a promoter. Um, he went over to, he was a sort of negotiated a deal for people to go over to WWF um and they took over uh, the george championship wrestling which was the biggest cable wrestling tv at the time and he also um made a lot of the tv deals which helped uh wwf sort of go nationwide in the, the mid 80s and really change the business that way okay let's talk about jim barnett after we go to our next topic okay okay
So in 1984, Barnett's started of Justice Jefferson to the World Prosperation, leading to what we know as Black Shadow Day. That's right. So that was um, at the time uh, George Championship Wrestling was uh, the, the first promotion to get uh, onto cable TV so it could be seen all over the country, which really changed how the wrestling business worked. Because till then, the only people you'd see on, on TV was the local promotion. Uh, so they had sort of a bit of a monopoly. Um, and with this, George has started going to, in particular, they would... Um, They'd ask fans to write in to say things like, you know, who they thought their favorite wrestlers or whatever. And for Matt, they'd work out where they had a lot of fans. So, for example, they found out that uh, there were a lot of fans in Ohio watching their shows. So they went and started doing live shows there. Um, and then, yeah, Jim Barnett and Jack Briscoe and a couple of other wrestlers uh, who owned a percentage of a promotion in Georgia uh, sold uh, their share to, to Vince McMahon, which... Uh, unknown to Ole Anderson, who was sort of the main shareholder, uh, was what Vince McMahon now had a, a majority in, in the promotion. So he effectively shut the promotion down um, and started putting WWF uh, wrestling on on the cable TV, um, on the, uh, the Turner network, uh, which got a really bad reaction from the fans because they didn't want to see kind of the... Uh, the style they were used to a particular style of wrestling uh, they were used to Gordon Soley as the announcer and suddenly they were getting um, this WWF style which wasn't in the studio it was kind of taped at, at shows around the country it wasn't live um, and that lasted for uh, a few months before Vince McMahon decided to kind of sell the uh, the time slot to Jim Crockett, who was uh, mid-Atlantic, uh, and that really helped kind of Jim Crockett become sort of the, the number two promotion in the country. Yeah, and the Black Saturday was nothing until US-18. The Black Saturday episode was made available as a hiding game on the network. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's um, been shown uh, a, a few times since then, sort of repeats, and it's it's just kind of a strange thing because it's it's so completely different to the, the wrestling they've been showing um and it's you know it wasn't sort of high quality matches or, or big stars um it wasn't kind of a big priority to put on a good show for wf so you can sort of see why fans were kind of really kind of shocked and disappointed to something they were so used to suddenly changing okay the next of jim barnett is he became a, a consistent from the tv in 2002 yes i mean even um after he'd he'd worked for wcw for many years um and had been involved in booking there um even when he was sort of quite age he was still kind of fondly remembered by by wwf for, for work that he'd done helping them um and he was hired as a uh sort of a consultant his job rather than go to shows was he would sit at home um just watch the show like any other viewer and kind of give them that perspective because it's a it's a different perspective it's quite hard when you put together a tv show yourself um you know what the storylines are meant to be you know for example you know if you can't have a wrestler on that week because he's injured or something you know why that's happened but the fan watching at home might understand that and and to them it's like the story doesn't make any sense because this guy who was you know very important in the big story last week suddenly isn't here so you know barnett's role was to be like the, the the fan and kind of give them the the feedback on on things that looks odd to the viewer 
Yeah, but sadly, two years later, Barnett died of pneumonia on September 18, 1988. He had recently developed cancer and broken his arm in, in, in a fall. Yeah, so yeah, it was uh, you're definitely a sad thing. It is such a, a, a shame, really, that he there's kind of no books about him or anything, and that he's kind of not so so well remembered for such an important you know figure uh, in kind of wrestling history. Yeah, but two questions, okay? How much, how many years Barnett was with cancer? I don't know that actually. But the, the other one, it, he has broken his arm in a fall. Uh, I don't know how in the hell he broke his arm. Um, well, it tends to be that's um, a, a lot of the time with with older people that is is the problem if they they have a fall, uh, their bones are sort of more brittle, um, and it kind of affects their mobility. Um, and you know, they have to go to hospital and get you know blood clots and things. So it's it's unfortunately uh, not uncommon. Okay, the next question is. Um, so Jim Barnett died, okay? So it's a word are this. Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, class of 1996. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, 1996 was the, the first year for Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So they didn't have voting that year. They just um, kind of put together a list of, I think it was about sort of 60 to 80 wrestlers who who absolutely had to be in first time. You know, people like Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Lou Tears, you know, Antonio Inoki. Um, and yeah, Barnett was certainly definitely someone who who had to be in the, the first class because they say he was so important to the way that wrestling developed. Yeah, and in 2019, the three of him inducted Jim, Jim Barnett in the Legacy Edition also. Yeah, so the Legacy Edition um, is where they sort of put the wrestlers who you you kind of really have to be in kind of any Hall of Fame to give it credibility, but they're either, you know, they passed away or they don't have a lot of footage of them. So, or, you know, they're sort of not as well known to the, the fans. Uh, so they don't have sort of a traditional induction where they, you know, come out and somebody introduces them and they may talk about their career, but it's more sort of a, a list of, of, of names that uh, ought to be in them. Certainly for, for WWF, he played a, a very important role to them. Uh, in kind of growing in the 1980s and getting sort of the TV exposure right around the country, which then uh, let them go and run live shows there. Okay, the next is a history of British wrestling, publishing press meters in two. Yeah, so this was um, at the time uh, was sort of one of the, the more detailed pieces of uh, history of of wrestling in Britain. It was sort of something that. Uh, a lot of people really hadn't explored uh, and that's a, a topic I've come back to uh, over the years so later I've done uh, much more detailed kind of uh, articles about uh, individual British wrestlers talking to them about their career um, but this is kind of a, a good a good starting point and it's, it's still um, quite see it online quite a lot of people sort of linking to it as um, kind of a source Okay, um, in the part two, we are going to talk about your another book of credits, right? Yes, certainly, yeah. Uh, I need to download that book on Kindle because in Google we can watch the, the book. Oh, that would be great, yeah. Okay, so the next is The Age of Innovation, publishing press in two. Yeah, so this is a piece looking at back at uh, wrestling in the 1930s, uh, which I'd sort of done a bit of exploration at the time. Um, 
and it was amazing sort of how many things in there um that you think of the kind of new ideas uh had been done in the 1930s so for example um there was a, a piece that i found in a book of a, a match in the 1930s where they uh, deliberately weakened the legs on the table. Somebody got pushed outside the ring and went through the table, which oh. is something you think of as, you know, Sabu and this public enemy in the 90s. Um, you had all sorts of weird gimmick matches in the 30s, like a lot of the cage matches started in the 30s. You had uh, wrestlers who would uh, kind of take on a name a lot like a big star, so that when you went there, you thought it was going to be the big star and it was actually somebody... Uh, under uh, the same name um you you had matches where people would kind of give the impression that everything else is fake but this match is real um you know this is this is a shoot and they they get on the matches and they even had a, a montreal screw job um in the 1930s where uh they wanted somebody they want to take the title off somebody um and in this case, rather than have a, a, a submission like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, they actually had a um, one of the wrestlers bit himself in the dressing room under the arm uh, and then sort of showed it to the, the referee during the match to make it look like his opponent had bitten him. Um, and at this time, the, the referees were kind of appointed by athletic commissions. Uh, so they, the referees weren't working for the promoters. Um, so obviously, whatever referee said said when and this referee was like well you've you've been you've cheated you've been disqualified you lose your title okay now this is the truth about smoke filled holes for wrestling press right to think you yeah so this is looking back on the the wwf version of history is always that you know wrestling was a, a very small local business that um you know, didn't get many fans and then they went nationwide and started filling big arenas uh so i was looking at uh, all the promotions around America in 1983 and kind of how many shows they were running, how many fans they were doing uh, and kind of came to the conclusion that far, far more many people were watching going to wrestling shows in 1983 than they, they were uh, when I wrote this piece sort of uh, 20 or so years later. Um, and, you know, there are far more many people working full time as wrestlers. So really though wwe had become bigger than any promotion had ever been the the business as a whole was sort of um much stronger in 1983. okay and the next one is the art of booking progressing press across in two yeah so this was looking at um kind of uh different bookers uh how they had sort of different tactics and strategies and theories of how to do good storylines how to do sort of good matches um and kind of really interesting pieces like Paul Bosch, who was a promoter uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, you know, kind of the things that he'd learnt um, about uh, having fan, you know, match, the matches aren't to make the, uh, for promoters' taste, they have to be for the fans' taste. Um, and the idea, people like Roy Shire was talking about the idea of if you were going to do a gimmick match, you had to kind of set it up and have a reason. So you wouldn't just have a cage match for the sake of it. You'd set it up by having, maybe have a normal match where some wrestlers interfered. Um, so you put the cage with the idea that now they can't get in, so it's going to be a fair fight. Or a lumberjack match, you'd have one of the wrestlers would, you'd have a match where somebody ran away from the ring. And the idea was that if you have the lumberjack match with all the wrestlers outside, then, you know, they can't, they can't run away this time. 
Okay, the next is that the uh, 25 best angles ever. Professor Impress, October 22. Can you tell us all the angles? Yeah, so we've got the uh, Ray Stevens and Pepper Gomez in 1962, where they did a thing where um, Pepper Gomez's gimmick was that he had an incredibly strong stomach. You know, he had no way to hurt it, and he'd let wrestlers would jump off the top rope or even jump off a ladder to jump onto his stomach. Um, it would never do any damage. Uh, and I had Ray Stevens then said, well, I, I'll take this challenge. And he jumped off ladder and rather than uh, land on his stomach, he he did a knee to her throat, which supposedly had, you know, Pepper Gomez coughing up blood. Um, and, and that obviously, you know, drew a lot of interest. I had uh, Boris Malenko, Steve Malenko's dad, uh, and Eddie Graham did a thing where uh, they got into a fight uh, and Eddie Graham punched him so hard that uh, Malen- uh, Boris Malenko's false teeth came out I and mean, then he stamped on his teeth. Uh, you had Tiger Jeet Singh and Antonio Inoki who uh, they did uh, an angle, not actually actually a show, but just uh, one day they had uh, Antonio Inoki walking out in the middle of Tokyo uh, and got attacked by Tiger Jeet Singh, um, which obviously you know, a lot of uh, drew a lot of attention and the newspapers covered it. Uh, had Joe Ledoux in Memphis, um, who would kind of uh, to show how serious he was at, that he was going to beat Jerry Lawler for the title, said he was going to make a blood oath, and he actually took an axe and legitimately cut his arm open on TV. Uh, the idea being, you know, it's going to leave a scar, and that was going to be permanently remind him of his hatred. Uh, you had the concession stand where um, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Wayne Ferris, who was later the Honky Tonk Man, and Larry Latham uh, brought to the back of the building and went into the kitchen and they were throwing hot dogs and mustard at each other. Um, Junkyard Dog and Michael Hayes did a thing where uh, they had a, a hair versus hair match, uh, which uh, Michael Hayes' tag partner had lost. Um, and he was supposedly putting hair cream on to make his hair grow back. Uh, and they, uh, Michael Hayes then rubbed it in Junkyard Dog's eyes and that was supposedly made him blind, uh, which a lot of the fans took, you know, very seriously and made would like, get, they even gave him money because they knew he couldn't work because he was blind. Uh, Bruno Sammartino and Larry Sabisco, where they had a match where... Larry Sbisco was sort of his student um, and was saying, you know, he wanted to kind of prove himself and we're having this um, match that started off as a very clean, fair fight. Uh, and Larry Sbisco was like, he was losing the match and getting really angry and more frustrated that he couldn't do anything. Um, and eventually hit, hit Bruno with a steel chair and that led him to sort of 35,000 fans at Shea Stadium. Uh, we have Jerry Lawler and Terry Funk did a, an empty arena match. Um, which obviously is, you know, now something you can see uh, every every uh, week on WWF. Um, but that was sort of a, a very violent fight that was very different than everything else. Um, yeah. Flair, Ric Flair, Ted DiBiase and Dick Murdoch did a thing where um, Ted DiBiase was actually a, a bad guy at the time. Dick Murdoch was a, a good guy. Um, but Dick Murdoch was given the title up against Ric Flair and... Um, uh, Burdock then smashed his head into the, into the post um, and then he came back uh, later in the show with sort of a big bandage on and it was um, like a double turn with uh, Ted Rossi and Dick Murdoch um, um, Yes, continue 
Uh, the next one was uh, Stan Hansen in 1981. Um, and that was the simplest angle ever. He was uh, working for New Japan at the time, signed a deal to work for All Japan um, and just turned came came out in the middle of a match and started um, uh, attacking people, um, which is you know, so shocked that people would, would turn. Um, we had Ricky Choshu forming the Ishin Gun, which at the time um, most Japanese wrestling was built around the idea of Japanese good guys against uh, sort of American and, and foreign bad guys. Um, and then Ricky Choshu would actually turn against the other big Japanese stars um, and sort of saying that, you know, we're, they were being held down, they wouldn't be given a fair chance. It was a kind of reality based angle. Um, the next one was Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman in uh, 1982, um, where they ended up on the David Letterman show um, and had a, a sort of an argument about a match they'd had, and, and um, Jerry Lawler uh, slapped Andy Kaufman, uh, and Andy Kaufman uh, threw coffee in his face. Uh, yeah. Terry Gordon, Terry okay. Von Eric. Well, okay, I will tell you a, a sweet wrestling match that is the most famous one. The which one? So the MT Arena? No, no, it was years ago. The uh, Great Antonio versus Antonio Inoki. Oh, yes, yeah, that's certainly a, a very famous match. It's, yeah, uh, I think Great Antonio thought he was uh, a much better wrestler than he was, and uh tried to kind of make a name for himself and, and that sort of backfired and he uh, was uh, Antonio Noki did a, a lot of damage to him. Well, so let's continue with our book. Wrestling's fan book. Publishing Press number team two. Yeah, so this was, uh, I'd, I'd bought a book uh, from eBay at the time which was written in 1952 um, and it was um, kind of looking at the, the whole kind of wrestling scene at the time. So I was sort of looking back and seeing kind of how how interesting it was to kind of learn all these things. It talks about all the top stars. There were supposedly 2,000 uh, wrestlers in America at the time working full time. A hundred different towns which had a show, at least one show every week. Um, uh, and then there's uh, there was a section there about, you know, ones to watch about wrestlers they thought were going to be stars in the future. And they did quite well because there were people like um, Stu Hart, Freddie Blassie, Killer Kowalski were all in there. So that was some uh, some good picks at the time. Okay, the next is whatever happened to George's, to George's George? Proposing impression is in three. Yeah, this again was a, another old book that I found. This one was from 1974, with uh, which was looking at the, the wrestling at the time. And there's all sort of uh, interesting things about, about um, particularly a lot of stories about Gorgeous George, um, uh, sort of, you know, the kind of the scams that he pulled, uh, and also the wrestler Jack, um, promoter Jack Pfeffer, who would do these kind of absolutely outrageous characters. Um, I think my favourite story in there was that was a, a wrestler who kicked the referee and the athletic commission um, who was sort of uh, fined her five, $5 uh, for real. Um, so a fan handed over $10 to pay the fine and she figured, well, I'm, you know, $5 in credit now so I can kick the referee again. Yeah. The next is unpublished article. Publishing this, you like three. Yeah, so this is a, a piece I wrote that... Um, 
wasn't printed um about a show that i went to where the um it, w- it was not in the town where most was based it was the other side of the country and they sent up a load of posters to but were meant to be put around the town uh, and around the venue to advertise it um and they hadn't been put up so there were only actually 40 people in the crowd um so I could, it's, it's kind of quite a detailed article about um how they sort of put on this show uh and how they adjusted track but there's sort of you know hardly anybody in the crowd so there wasn't a, a lot of noise or anything so that, again that's a another thing that's kind of quite relevant today okay Nanesh. joe cole a critical analysis probably this november three yeah so this is a there's a book called chokehold uh written by a former wrestler called jim wilson um and it's an incredibly detailed book um but sort of partly a story about him, but partly about kind of a lot of the problems in, in wrestling, particularly the fact that um, it was kind of controlled by the NWA and the WWF. Um, and they would, the idea was that, you know, if you upset one promoter, uh, all the other promoters would refuse to use you. So you'd be sort of blackballed. Um, and there was a lot of things that were uh, kind of because wrestling wasn't taken seriously by people outside a lot of sort of you know the the real problems with it were completely ignored um and when the book came out i think a lot of people kind of criticized it because jim wilson uh was he he thought he should have been a much bigger star he thought he should have been world champion um which you know uh, anyone who's still seen in wrestling didn't agree with um and the article i'm writing is kind of exploring the how much notice should you take you know should you take the fact that jim wilson isn't necessarily a very reliable person um but you know is other points you making still valid okay now this is that must be thoroughly behind the small print of the tv contract publishing press matching for yeah so this is kind of looking at the the contracts that wrestlers are under and kind of um how many things people might not realize about them particularly the fact that um um a lot of wrestlers now get sort of a guaranteed amount each year but the actual amount that you get paid um for a pay-per-view or working a a live event is completely decided by wwe themselves so you a lot of people would you know you'd go on to wrestlemania have your match and you wouldn't know till a few months later how much you were going to get out of it um and also there were things which again this is you know still very much relevant today um the idea is that the, the wrestler can't end the contracts early. They they can ask to be let out, but WWE doesn't have to do it. But WWE can, you know, just cut the contract at any time and, and sort of um, fire them straight away. Um, so it's, it's interesting how many things in there are sort of very unbiased, uh, sort of, you know, very uneven. And yeah, also but... a lot of things as to you know, what wrestlers have to do themselves. So they, you know, it says in their contract, they have to, uh, you know, make all their own ring gear. They have to transport themselves. Um, they have to, uh, you know, win or lose and, and, and sort of do as they're told and, and things like that are actually in the contract. Yeah. Last night was a dark, a dark, a dark day for wrestling, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy i think it's the most number of wrestlers who've been let go in a, in a single day um and it it's kind of quite strange to see so many people going well we have to do it because you know they can't afford all these these people um 
and WWE makes so much money from their uh, television contracts now that um, they could absolutely afford to you know carry on uh, with all these these wrestlers and and still make a huge profits next year. And it's the worst time ever to be released because there's there's no other wrestling promotions in America running shows so they're unlikely to be hiring people and there's sort of no one-off shows um and it's even going to be hard to sort of you know quit wrestling and get a normal job right now so it's it's the, the, the worst time ever for this to happen particularly you know, in a week where where WWE has been sort of successfully lobbying to say we have to be allowed to carry on run, running shows we're sort of an essential business we we need going and it's it's quite strange that they're an essential business but the the wrestlers aren't essential employees yeah, and the final question of the book. Having your take on it, publishing first of your April 24. Yeah, so fortunately this is one that uh, really has become quite dated. Um, it, it's kind of looking at the fact that in kind of mid-2000s, I think British wrestling was, was a very quiet scene at the time. Um, there were sort of not a lot of promotions doing very big crowds. Um, and it wasn't a problem with the talent. You know, there were talented wrestlers out there, but it was a lot of problems was that promoters were, they were more interested in kind of feuding with each other and, and more interested in making sure that other promotions did badly rather than they did well. And I was kind of looking here on, you know, how British wrestling had so much potential if, if promoters worked together, um, you know, had a kind of good quality production, did better advertising of the shows. Um, and, you know, eight to 10 years after that, you know, British wrestling really had a, a big revival um, to a point where, you know, people from around the world were sort of tuning in to, to watch British wrestling and a lot of the British wrestlers were then sort of signed up. And if you look at it now, there's sort of every promotion in the world, really, that uh, has, you know, a couple of, of British wrestlers, at least as, as big stars there. Okay, we finished the book, but the next book will be, is the most interesting one. An authorized and ancestor turning the tables. That is, that is the story of extreme championship wrestling. Yeah, look forward to, to talking about that. So let's go with the first chapter of the book. Let me let me go. Created by uh, by the by the great John Lester right here. That's correct. Yep. Okay, the contents. That's one. Does it that put Santa Claus? Yeah, so uh, Turning the Tables is, was the, the first published book that was a, a history of ECW. Um, and we start with uh, the City of the Boots, and for the first chapter, it's kind of about um, wrestling in Philadelphia before ECW. Um, and it was a, a, a very kind of violent style, even when WWF and WCW were there. Um, so kind of looking at kind of the, the history of wrestling in, in Philadelphia uh, and also the tri-state promotion, which was there just before ECW and had a lot of the, the same talent, um, but didn't really take off because they they were spending far more money bringing in wrestlers than they could ever possibly hope to, to get by selling out the tickets. Okay, number two, the building are nowhere. Yeah, so this goes on to uh, when ECW starts running um, and then they uh, move to what was then known as the ECW Arena. Um, and uh, the reason for the for building it nowhere is actually everybody knew it as uh, Swanson and Rittner Street. Um, but actually, uh, that, that kind of 
section of roads didn't really exist it was uh, just a bit but being paved over the end of it um so you know a lot of people went for the first time they'd use uh sort of mapping services or get a taxi and then they had no idea where it was <laughs> okay number three the most controversial manager of all time and promoter paul Heyman. yeah so this looks at uh when he takes over um kind of a little bit about his background uh, and then when he takes over and there's kind of a real change in uh, the, the wrestlers being pushed, there are a lot of kind of younger wrestlers who hadn't been stars before, people like um, Public Enemy and Sabu and so on. Um, and it was um, where he really sort of took over and started making them into kind of the new stars. Yeah, the next is this. For the the night, the line was crossed. Yes, yeah, so this is a a, a famous uh, show which had a, a main event with a freeway match between Terry Funk, Shane Douglas, and Sabu. Uh, that was a, a sixty minute draw, uh, and then afterwards you had uh, kind of interviews with Terry Funk and and Shane Douglas. Uh, which was sort of transcribing that, where Shane Douglas, uh, you know, until this point, he'd been uh, best known as like a you know very clean cut baby face and kind of guy that a lot of the fans didn't really like because he was kind of too too sort of boring, too kind of cute. And here he's kind of like really changed his attitude. Um, so this really kind of made him uh, made him a big star. Yeah, listen, let's review the the court. You know what wrestling for Ethereum I want to interview next? Uh, who's that? Nine one one. Oh yeah, that would be interesting. But I don't know if he has Facebook or Twitter. I don't know. No, I've not not heard anything of him for for many years. He was in WSW for a bit, and then yes, yeah, so he seemed to disappear. But uh, do you think I can interview Nine One One via Facebook or Twitter? I don't know how to interview him. Yeah, I don't know if you, yeah. I mean, if you can can find him, it'd be interesting to talk to. Yeah, because I'm wanting to know about ATW and all that. Okay, so the next one is this: is vice the fans? Yes, I mean that was a a big part of ECW, particularly at the ECW Arena. Um, was that they had uh kind of very different fans who weren't necessarily uh going to like kind of the wwf characters and sort of the straightforward good guys and bad guys um and a, a lot of the fans would you you didn't know how they were going to react to wrestlers you had um some wrestlers who were sort of brought in to be big stars and the fans didn't turn to get turned to really like them and then people like the, the Dudley boys who were just meant to be sort of, you know, a, a one-off joke. They weren't meant to be big characters uh, and they got a really big response from the crowd, um, particularly, particularly Bubba and then Devon. And, you know, they ended up getting 25-year careers out. Okay, so, Jan, we are going to take a break for the, here, but we are going to do this. Um, you're, we are going to watch two extreme, the 15 greatest moments in Italy history and how you remember it, okay? Yeah, certainly see, Matt, yeah. Okay, number 15. The fire incident of 1995. Yeah, so that was a, a, a crazy thing. They had um, somebody, as, uh, it was Terry Funk and Cactus Jack, and they did a thing where they 
litter uh, a bit of cloth at, at ringside to, to throw as a fire and it actually ended up going into the crowd and, and burning a fan which you know I think any other promotion that would have been an absolute legal nightmare and probably shut them down and somehow they were able to able to talk the fan out of uh, out taking him to court for that okay number 14 when he reigns his powers that shares the one the went from Terry Funk and Mick Foley that shares for the fans throw yeah, again, uh, another, that's uh, definitely a fans you wouldn't have anywhere else. It was, um, I think, Terry Funk, uh, one of them had uh, asked for fans to throw him a chair to use, uh, and a couple of people, other people did it, and then sort of everybody started uh, throwing their fans in until all the wrestlers were, you know, just buried underneath the, the things. And it's one of the things that, you know, if you look at it objectively, you think that is absolutely terrible it should never have happened you know you should that's absolutely dangerous it's health and safety nightmare but it looks amazing on on tv and it was in the uh the, the opening credits of a tv show and it was sort of one of the, the visuals that everyone remembers okay now next one is sabu's orific entry at november 594 yeah, so he he Sabu had you know all sorts of injuries with him with style. Um, he landed on his neck head once and sort of he you know, broke his neck. Um, probably the most famous uh, injury was where he um, had his his I think it was his hand was cut open, uh, and he uh, helped put it put super glue on it to hold the skin together, um, which was like absolutely insane thing to do but obviously you know he didn't want to go to hospital and pay the hospital bills um and actually a few years later that became a a, a medical thing that uh you know real doctors started using okay now next is 12 the gruesome scenes are one to be well with, with sabu and 30 funk yeah that was a, a absolutely hideous match they they had a, a no rope barbed wire match which is um kind of a lot more dangerous because obviously if there's, there's no give uh, no sort of rebounds you just go straight into it and um sabu in particular he had some barbed wire kind of wrapped around his arm that was uh kind of got stuck in there and cut him open really deeply so that was a uh, uh another match that was sort of memorable for all the wrong reasons okay number 11 let's take a look the salmon sabu fuse for 1998 <laughs> yeah no i, I I, I would probably take issue with that being so highly because it was it was very memorable, but not for the right reasons. Um, they Sabu and, and Sandman, particularly their first match, um, was just absolutely terrible because um, Sandman was you know had quite a basic style and was not always in the best condition to form. Um, Sabu would you know, kind of had a quite a reckless style where he kind of hit a move as often as he missed it um and they were just like messing up everything going um and then their their next paper in 1998 they had to come up with a storyline that it was uh could be too violent for tv so they'd have to tape it first and, and then edit it if needed and actually that was just done so that if they if they messed up any more moves they'd be able to to put it back together but yeah it was just a a, a clash of styles that didn't work out okay i don't know this story but you're going to tell me okay so salmon blended with cigarette. Yes, yeah, so that was um, uh, a story that they did with uh, Sandman, and uh, it was either Tommy Kyra or Tommy Dream. I I don't remember which off the top of my head. Um, where 
um, he'd been hit with a cane and supposedly it knocked his cigarette into his eye. Um, but he actually, to kind of make this, this more believable, he stayed at home uh, for like the next several weeks um never went out of the house and nobody saw him um which meant a lot a lot of these fans who were kind of hardcore fans who kind of knew how wrestling worked thought they sort of knew all the storylines but they started genuinely believing that he he had been blinded um in particular they sort of showed a a lot of footage of of backstage which you sort of never saw on tv before they showed him being taken backstage and being kind of attended to and everybody was sort of you know panicking backstage which made it a lot more realistic um and then they he had a a retirement ceremony and in this retirement ceremony he you know took off his sunglasses started attacking wrestlers and revealed that it was all a a big and the kind of fans were they were half upset that they'd been lied to and half you know delighted that they've been lied to because it was such a, a a great moment okay the next one is um dominic Timur's wife Beulah and kimona Ateos. yeah so uh Beulah mcgillita cutty was part of the, the raven and tommy dream of feud the idea was that um she was uh, a girl they'd both known at summer camp uh, when they were were sort of teenagers um, and at the time, Tommy Dreamwick ignored her because she was sort of, you know, a frumpy, ugly girl. And she'd now grown up into this like, absolutely gorgeous woman who was now with Raven. Um, she eventually then left him for Tommy Dreamer. Um, so he then got Kimono One Layer, who was uh, a legitimately a dancer and a stripper. Um, and then eventually um, the, the two women ran off together. So it was... Um, quite the sort of crazy uh, soap opera kind of storylines that you don't necessarily kind of associate with ECW. Okay, the next one is the most bloodiest, Mass Transit. Yeah, so that was um, a, a case where they had a, uh, I think it was a 17 or 18 year old wrestler who was sort of three or 400 pounds, um, had just sort of turned up at a show to see if he could get a booking um, and was kind of let on to the show because uh, they were short, shorter wrestlers. Um, and he had a match uh, where New Jack was one of the wrestlers who sort of took a, it was actually a sort of a scalpel blade onto on a, a, a bit of wood um who he then cut him open with it and cut sort of so deeply that he uh was sort of bleeding very very heavily and they couldn't stop the bleeding and had to take him to hospital um that eventually took led to a sort of a real court case where uh new jack was kind of charged with with assault um but was kind of acquitted on that um okay continue sorry yeah, so it, there was a, a a lot of backlash to that. Um, some of the pay-per-view companies who were planning to put ECW on pay-per-view for the first time sort of saw the tape of this uh, and was sort of so sort of upset by it. they they cancelled the pay-per-view and wouldn't show it for a long time. Um, so it sort of cost them a lot of business, um, and it's kind of a controversial moment. Yeah. Num- okay. Number seven, the ring collapse with Public Enemy. Yeah, so this was a showdown in Florida where uh, Public Enemy were in the sort of main, I think it was the main event, um, won the match and sort of celebrating afterwards doing their sort of dancing ring. And they invited a couple of fans to come and sort of dance with them and then they invited a few more. And then again, similar to the, the incident with the chair throwing, sort of uh, it got out of hand. 
sort of hundreds of fans started got in the ring and were all sort of dancing about. Uh, and it was so much for a ring side swing side to side and then just like literally collapsed. And luckily nobody was hurt. And again, it was just a, a thing that they, they showed on TV because it just looks absolutely incredible. And it was, it was uh, something you would never see happen at sort of a WWE, WWF or WCW show. The number six is this from Raven, that crucifixion angle. Yeah, so um, Sandman and Raven were in a feud at the time, um, and Raven did sort of a symbolic uh, thing where he'd made a, a cross. In fact, um, the, the irony is that actually uh, the, the wrestler who played uh, the Sandman was the one who, who made it for real because he was a, a carpenter at the time. But they brought out this cross and kind of... Um, Are you there? Changed him. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, they brought out a cross um, and tied him to him and carried it away. Um, what made it really bad was that um, Kurt Angle was in the crowd. He was at the time had just come out of the Olympics and was kind of a interest had become interested in pro wrestling and gone to his show. Um, had seen Taz. He was like a big fan of sort of Taz was doing a lot of the amateur style, uh, and Kurt Angle was sort of a devout Christian. Saw this. Uh, crucifixion storyline and was just so disgusted he he walked away and was not involved in wrestling again for another two years okay number five as good as it gets yeah this yeah. is from from spike w being toast by bam bam bigelow yeah so this was a, a show in uh, 1997 it had a, a couple of memorable moments one of them was um Bam Bam Bigelow picked up uh, Spike Dudley, who was obviously, you know, about a third of his size, um, threw him out of the ring into the crowd. Um, and the, the crowd actually caught him uh, and then sort of passed him over like he was sort of body surfing at a concert back into the ring. Um, so that's kind of a, a memorable moment. Uh, and on the same show, you had um, Bill Alfonso, who was a, a, an evil referee turned manager, and Bean McGillicutty, who we talked about earlier. Uh, had a match which you know on the face of it should have been terrible because nine of them were were trained wrestlers um but they had sort of a a, a really strong kind of very basic kind of uh, brawling match with a lot of blood into, into it that the crowd really got into okay now next the number four is Shane Douglas humiliating the NWA yeah so uh 1994 uh the NWA was kind of reviving its uh its world title and needed to create a new champion um were no longer sort of dealing with WCW they dealt with before and Dennis Cobaluso who was in the NWA had had a, a lot of rivalry with ECW over and Paul Heyman over the years so it's kind of straight strange that they worked together um but they they agreed to do this thing where Shane Douglas was going to win it and be the NWA champion uh and what he actually did was once he he won the title he threw the belt on the floor and said it you know wasn't worth anything that the NWA was dead uh and that he was um you know for ECW now ECW was kind of the real promotion uh and that's when they moved from Eastern Championship Wrestling to Extreme Championship Wrestling Okay, number three, it's Vince McMahon ECW champion. Yeah, so obviously this was uh, not the, the ECW that everyone knows and loves, but it was um, after Vince McMahon, after ECW went out of business, Vince McMahon bought the, the rights to the name uh, and did the, the one-night stand pay-per-view, which was for sort of a successful reunion show. Uh, and the year after that, he uh, started up 
uh, ECW as a, a weekly TV show, which started out with kind of some of the old ECW wrestlers, uh, and then eventually it became sort of a a bit like NXT now is now, where it's kind of a, a place where sort of you know, veterans would go down who weren't being used, and then kind of future wrestlers who were kind of in training would go there to kind of learn more about wrestling on TV. Uh, and at one point, Vince McMahon actually became the ECW champion for a few weeks, which was uh, certainly something he probably enjoyed and something I think where the long-term fans might not have been so happy about. Yeah, the teammates were Bobby Lashley, Vince McMahon, CM yeah. Punk, <laughs> and Chavo Guerrero, Kane, Ezekiel Jackson, and Christian. Yeah, and number two is this. Shane Douglas loses the plot. When Shane, uh, I don't know, Shane Douglas with people to an incident. Right, I'm not sure exactly which one this is. It might be the, uh, the night line was CrossFit we were, were just talking about um, where he sort of, you know, did this, this kind of had this, this long match and made this amazing interview where he was kind of uh, a much more sort of adult grown up style. Okay, this was on October 5th, But next, now number one, the most shocking is in the moment is very legal. The first is a pay-per-view. Yes, I mean, that was when ECW kind of really, really kind of arrived uh, that they were doing national pay-per-view. And the idea was that this was going to be how they would make a lot of money and become sort of, you know, a profitable promotion. Um and they did. They think did something like about a hundred thousand buys, which was probably much more than anyone would have expected for considering they didn't have national television at the time. They were only on kind of local stations. Um and it was kind of quite a successful show and it was kind of quite interesting to see, you know, what level of support they really did have around the country. Okay, we continue with, we continue with that book. Number six, character assimilation. Yeah, so that piece is really about how they created a, a lot of the characters and kind of evolved. So we had uh, 911, who we've talked about, who was, you know, a, re- a wrestler who only had one move. All he did was a choke slam, and he sort of come in. Um, but it, it was sort of completely different. You had Mikey Whipwreck, who was, the story was that he was the, the worst wrestler in the world. He's like the ultimate loser, but would uh, kind of win matches by accident. And gradually sort of over his career, he got better and better in, in kind of storyline until he eventually became ECW champion and even pins uh, Steve Austin. And then you had guys like uh, Sandman, which, you know, started out as a surfer uh, and then started being just someone who would smoke and drink all the time because that's what he was doing backstage anyway. So it was uh, kind of a, uh, a very believable character because there was a lot of truth in it. Okay, number seven, that double cross. Yeah, so that's the uh, the NWA title thing that we've we've just talked about. Um, kind of looking into the story of who knew what and when, um, and who's kind of changed their story about it afterwards, um, and how it was sort of you know kind of a, a controversial moment. Okay, number eight, extreme expansion. Yeah, so this is looking more um, the kind of the business side of it. Uh, as to how they started running not just in Philadelphia but they'd get like a local TV station in Florida or somewhere and start running there start running sort of more shows and kind of the effects that this had on the style because obviously once you were working more matches it became kind of hard to do such a hard-hitting style Uh, okay number nine the three-way dance 
yeah so this was um kind of one of the, the best storytelling they did um with sabu and taz uh, against public enemy and chris benoit and dean malenko um and they sort of built up for kind of the best part of a year really um were sort of building up this storyline where they were all sort of wrestling at different times um and they eventually would build up to a match where all three teams would face off against each other which was still kind of quite innovative at the time um and then sabu actually didn't come to the match he uh, was booked in japan on the same date and chose to go to japan um and it was kind of quite amazing that uh you know the ecw fans could be turned against sabu when he didn't turn up considering how popular he was and it's kind of a sign that the promotion itself um, was really the most important thing to the fans. Okay, number 10, a storied summer. Yeah, this was uh, really about the summer of uh, 1995. Um, there's uh, you know, a lot going on outside the ring behind the scenes, but also there's a lot of kind of storytelling. Uh, the Raven and Dreamer feud was going on. You had Bill Alfonso who came in and the kind of a sign of how different ECW was, was that he was the ultimate villain, was the referee Bill Alfonso, because he actually enforced the rules. Um, if people were, you know, using punches or using weapons, he'd disqualify them. And that was the, the absolute worst thing you could do in ECW. Okay, number 11, Fire and Pizzas. Yeah, that was um, uh, about kind of uh, uh, people like uh, Steve Austin came in um, and you had uh, particularly Mick Foley who started doing, he he turned heel and started doing these um, gimmick where basically he hated the hardcore style. He wanted to, you know, wrestle as safely as possible. He didn't want to get injured anymore. He wanted to be, you know, uh, be home for his family. Uh, okay, number kind of awkward thing where he was um doing these kind of things that were, were seen as heel promos but he was completely telling the truth so it, it kind of made people very uncomfortable about the fact that what he was saying was true okay number 12 yeah so again that's looking at uh kind of the, the changes that came in 1996 they were expanding a bit um, but also, I think the, the in-ring became a lot better in 1996. Uh, you had people like Chris Jericho and Two Cold Scorpio. Um, you had Steve Williams coming from Wall Japan. Um, so it was kind of definitely it was a, a good in uh, good year in the ring. Okay, number 13, Rubber. Yeah, so this was uh, Revere, Massachusetts, and that was where the, the uh, mass transit incident we talked about uh took place so this this chapter goes really into sort of very big detail about uh exactly what happened uh on the 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 tape of this match uh which is something that's been misreported a lot uh and then sort of the sequence of events um of of what happened afterwards okay number 14 the road to pay-per-view yeah, so this looks at uh, the kind of the fallout from from uh, Revere and how they had to delay the pay-per-view. And then when it eventually happened, it, it wasn't going to be on uh, every sort of cable company around the country, which which hurt it quite a bit. But it's kind of a, the process of, of how this sort of controversial incident kind of uh, affected them behind the scenes. Okay, number 15 is very legal, but we talk about this. Yeah, so this is kind of looking at uh, you know the pay per view very much in depth of um, of how we did. Yeah, actually looking, at it, it's actually it was more about forty to forty five thousand, um, 
which was probably the equivalent of 100,000 had they been available around the country because a lot of people were in places where they might have wanted to order the show but their local cable company wasn't ordering it so they, they weren't able to see it. Okay, number 16, Anatomy of a Feud, Rhythm versus Dreamer. Yeah, so in this chapter actually uh, goes into, it's sort of a, a timeline really of everything that happened in the, the Raven Dreamer feud, which was kind of one of the longest running storylines they had. Um, and the, the, the big story on TV was that uh, Raven Dreamer would never be able to pin Raven. He, he never, uh, never won the match. You know, he might win a tag match, but not pin him. Um, and how they managed to kind of drag this out for sort of two and a half, nearly three years and still keep it interesting without him ever sort of getting that big win. Okay, number 17, ECW versus WWF. Yeah, so this is looking at the, the summer of 1997. They started um, doing things where WWF was losing the sort of Monday Night Wars to, to Nitro at the time. So it was looking for ways to kind of attract viewers. Uh, and ECW obviously was looking for kind of exposure nationally to sort of sell their pay-per-views. Uh, so they did kind of a long storyline where they would occasionally be on raw um and then wrf wrestlers would come to the ecw arena um and looking at um how sort of wwf was was billed as the heels here um but also looking at how sort of behind the scenes things were, were sort of going on uh for the relationship between the two countries companies okay number 18 1998 yeah, so this is, is kind of looking at, at 1998, which is where they start running pay-per-view uh, four times a year, uh, running a much bigger promotion, um, sort of doing biggest crowds ever. You know, they did a crowd of, of over 5,000 fans for one of their pay-per-views, um, 4,700 paid for another one. Um, they were paying sort of more money to the wrestlers and putting them under contract because otherwise they were going to go to WWF and WCW. Um, and it's kind of looking at how it was the, the most successful they'd been in terms of revenue, but they were sort of still losing money because a lot of the things they, they had to do to get bigger and run more often and expand nationwide were, were costing a lot of money. So it was hurting the cash flow. Okay, number 19. 10 classic children self-introductions. Tell yeah, that's... Tell that's, us, that was, Joel Gertner was the uh, sort of the manager of the Dudley Boys, uh, and he'd always um, have these absolutely filthy kind of introductions where he'd introduce himself. Um, I don't any of them you could probably uh, re repeat on air, um, but yeah, it's just like a little fun interlude in the book. Okay, number twenty: extreme problems. Yeah, so this is again looking at uh, once we get into kind of nineteen ninety nine. Um, it's, it's getting a, a lot more serious for cash flow problems. Um, this is actually the first time that uh, wrestlers were sort of not getting paid on time. Um, and they had a lot of uh, big problems where they would have to pay all the costs of their pay-per-view events straight away. Uh, but they didn't actually get the money for the pay-per-view for sort of several months after that. So they started taking out kind of loans to get them through. And it was kind of um, really kind of cycling out of control. Uh, number 21 is T TNN. Yeah, so TNN, uh, which uh, is, is later Spike TV, was a, a national cable TV. And ECW got a deal to be on, on national television, which 
made perfect sense because it meant far more people watching the show it meant you could sell advertising you could do sort of licensing deals because people would want to be kind of associated with a a brand that's on national tv um but they signed it It was a terrible deal it meant they could be sort of cancelled quite easily at any time they were having to give some of their profits over to um to tnn as part of the deal rather than being paid for the television like happens now um and then they had a lot of problems with uh sort of the content of the shows that wasn't suitable for tnn um and really for it to to have paid off they would have had to have a sort of a dramatic increase in business uh which turned out not to be the case okay bonus question and um, the destruction of tnn was by cyrus that's right yeah so um they uh cyrus of virus who um had previously been in sort of wwf uh it's now sort of a commentator for new japan now and again and and works for tna um and they sort of turned him into an on-screen character who was the, the face of the evil network um and it was quite the for what they were trying to do was kind of portray tnn uh as kind of the, the villains um which gave something for so and it was about getting the fans to carry on supporting ecw as a, as a brand Okay, number 22, 22, decline. Yeah, so this is just about the, the final months. Um, once they were off TV, they ran for about um, four more months, uh, running sort of less and less often. Um, they were still doing good crowds, but it was nowhere near paying the salaries of everyone who was, who was uh, wrestling there. And uh, they, were, they borrowed money from Vince McMahon at this point um they had wrestlers starting to leave because they were so far behind with payment um and eventually they sort of uh pulled the plug on it and uh uh, paul Heyman got a job working as a commentator on wwf okay number 23 after mass yeah so this is looking at the ecw at this point went into bankruptcy um looking for uh sort of the facts and figures of who was owed money um how much ECW was problems um and how it all ends up with wwf actually buying the trademarks and the, the tape library which they allowed them to do sort of ecw dvd and eventually bring it back as a promotion okay do you do you, do you say bankruptcy sorry bankruptcy and like the extra film uh, yes there. yeah yeah that's the same the same situation um and it was just kind of uh dividing the money up uh, as to to what was left because they were still kind of owed some money by pay-per-view companies but it was nowhere nowhere close to the the, the money that they owed kind of for wrestlers and people who'd lent the money okay and 24 resurrection Yeah, and this is kind of the, the, the end of a book um, looking at uh, how um, there's all there's this nostalgia for ECW for all these years. Um, and then WWF sort of brought back in 2005, did a, a reunion show called One Night Stand and pretty much left, um, left uh, Paul Heyman kind of run it and promote it himself and how it was... Um, just like this this amazing show it wasn't necessarily the best wrestling ever but it was like the best atmosphere um and how they uh sort of decided then really to do nothing with it uh this is book was written in 2005 so this is before they came back the following year and kind of resurrected ecw as a, a full-time sort of brand 
Yeah, but I'm watching um, because on December, ECW um, um, made the worst show in history of ECW. <laughs> Yeah, so it's yeah, it's uh, 2006. Uh, once they've been on sort of TV for about six months, they had the uh, December to Dismember show, and I mean it. It was certainly authentic in that they didn't announce any of the matches in advance, which was something that regularly happened with ECW. But yeah, it, it was a, a sort of a terrible show, and it it wasn't what ECW fans who were around wanted to see, and it there weren't many people interested in itself. And yeah, that was at that point was the end of Paul Heyman, and until he came back with Brock Lesnar. Yeah, because of the extreme elimination chamber match. Yeah, so of course that was uh, you know Sabu was eliminating the the ECW original wrestlers were were gone very quickly, and you had um, I mean Sabu was taken out and replaced by Bob Holly, and it was all sort of uh, entirely kind of WWF wrestlers in it uh, doing kind of a WWF match, and just like at that point it was it had no connection to the original ECW, which I think was something that had to happen eventually. But I think a, a lot of kind of the, the fans they brought in with that name were sort of upset at that point. Okay, number 25, the extreme reality. Yeah, so this is the conclusion to the book and it's kind of looking at um, what was so special about ECW, which was um, that it was, you know, they would have so many different styles but they didn't kind of have rules for you must wrestle in this particular way even if that's not your strength so if somebody was you know good at high flying and not so good at technical wrestling on the map they would let them do high flying matches because that was better um also the fact that um they kind of changed it to ecw itself was the brand was that the fans would support them and but other promotions and other stars of wrestlers were kind of villains and that way you weren't kind of hurt when your wrestlers left and um, because ecw was still there and also just you know looking at the reality of the money which is that they they were always having to expand um to kind of get bigger and bigger and try and make money um but every time they expanded it it cost them too it cost them more money um straight away than they'd eventually make so they were always um going to be sort of running short of cash okay and the final one is appendix the ecw alumni yes it's just a sort of a, a little bit at the end of the book and it's just a, a list of everybody who ever wrestled for ecw and the, the date they first put then uh people from uh steve richards was actually in the very first ever ecw match and you go through the sort of so many wrestlers who've wrestled over the years um including like you know scott hall sid vicious um in fact scott hall was the second last wrestler ever to, to debut um yeah jean pierre lafitte who's now um pco um uh, i kind of a lot of wrestlers who you know went on to uh be kind of famous even ghetto who's now the new japan booker was in there uh lisa started out wrestling there um christopher daniels so it's, it's this kind of amazing uh roster of, of people from all walks of life hello hello are you are you there yes of yes. course so so we are going to ask the last question from the fans okay that's okay okay tell the fans tell the fans to buy your book please leave a message to your fans to buy to buy, to buy the book yep so uh I've, I've got these books out slamphology and turning the tables and you can find out more about them you can search for them on amazon also have a blog called prowrestlingbooks.com 
uh, where I review. There's more than 200 wrestling books on there that I've reviewed. Uh, but also, if you go there, there's a, a link called Books by John List. Um, that will tell you all about my books and, and how to buy them. Okay, and the last question. Uh, after we go of the year, okay? Okay. Uh, well, uh, what is next for you? What book will be next? Like WWE, NWA, DNA, and Ring of Honor, or what? Um, it's it's hard to say at the moment. Um, I, I've worked on uh, books about sort of British wrestlers. Um, I, I ideally, if you know, if I won the lottery or something, I'd I'd like to go to wrestling in as many different countries around the world uh, and write about that. So maybe that'll be a sort of a, a long term goal. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Jim, for being on the podcast. But we have uh, we have gone one hour twenty eight um thirty eight minutes. One hour thirty eight minutes. Wow. It's been uh, been lots to talk about. So it's been been very enjoyable. Okay, so Jen, we are going to bring part two coming soon. Uh, okay, you will be on my podcast coming soon. Okay, for part two. Okay. Okay, Doc. Okay, but thank you for being on the podcast. Great. Thanks a lot, and good to speak to you. Bye, man. Okay, Doc. Bye, Ben. Bye.